I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing the conversations about the cultures of consciousness. As a uh, San Franciscan now for uh, over 25 years, uh, I've been uh, privy to the experience of watching uh, the technology industry, Silicon Valley, uh, computer culture, techno culture, uh, explode and sort of collapse and then explode at an even uh, greater velocity, uh, all the while changing the city, changing people's consciousness, changing the very fabric um, of everyday life. And I came out here partly drawn t- uh, to this culture because I was already interested and kind of uh, slipped my way into um, the the countercultural fringe of cyber culture or techno culture back in the early 1990s. I came out to San Francisco in 1990 for an event called the Cyberthon, uh, a now obscure uh, relic of some past <laughs> many years ago, but uh, it was a crisscross of. Uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, hippie Stuart Brand, uh, uh, maker, proto-maker culture with virtual reality and psychedelic uh, superstars like Timothy Leary, science fiction writers, uh, William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, Are You Serious, Amondo 2000. Uh, I met a lot of good uh, people there that, that, that ended up being my friends over the time. So I was in a very interesting place to watch uh, as various countercultural uh, impulses express themselves in the growing technology industry and, of course, eventually becoming a rather minor theme um, in that great story. Uh, although, uh, as our guest today will show us, that the imprints of the counterculture on uh, technology, on Silicon Valley, um, are, are not sort of just a minor froth that really you can't tell the story of the modern computer, of the internet, of Wired Magazine, of uh, Google, uh, et cetera, et cetera, without talking about um, the possibilities, the potentials, the dreams, the utopias, the craziness, the excesses, uh, maybe even the, the idiocy sometimes um, of the counterculture. And our guest today is Adam Fisher, who was my uh, editor at Wired Magazine when I wrote regularly for the magazine uh, in the about 25 years ago. Uh, and uh, just sort of at the the, the point in the magazine's history where they were trying to like chase out any last countercultural remnants so that it could just become a nice Silicon Valley, uh, you know, uh, New, the New Yorker for the Silicon Valley or whatever. That's not the right analogy. Um, but I got to do some great stories uh, with Adam, and uh, I've been following his writing as a cultural journalist, a technology journalist. Uh, since that time, and his new book, his first book, is called Valley of Genius, The Uncensored History of Silicon Valley as Told by the Hackers, Founders, and Freaks Who Made It Boom. Um, And it's a wonderful book. Uh, It's a story that needs to be told, and it needs to be told in detail because the, the Silicon Valley is so driven by hype that the stories that, he, that both it tells itself about itself 
and the stories that other people tell about Silicon Valley have, I think, an extra layer of hype and simplicity and bullshit in them. And one of the wonderful things about this book is that Adam elected to write it by interviewing over 200 people, some of them quite extensively, and then sitting down with scissors and a huge stacks of printed out paper and cutting and splicing a story that's told in the voices of the interviewees. So you see their, their names, you get a sentence, a two sentence, sometimes a paragraph, usually not for very long. And then it's woven together in this very rich way. And it, it, you know, it's, a, it's a marvelous way to tell a story because you just get more points of view than any single person who's always gonna have their spin, their agenda has. And, uh, you know, I've spent the last couple of days reading through the book and uh, reading stories, both that I know pretty well and things that I don't know anything about at all. And I've, uh, I've learned a great deal and enjoyed the ride. So uh, I think it's a, it's a crucial story. And again, uh, particularly now, as we're sort of reassessing the, the value of Silicon Valley, uh, the, the meaning of these technology companies that now so dominate our lives. It's really important to have a, your, a, a nitty-gritty sense of the history. So uh, I'd like to w welcome Adam onto the show. Thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. Great to be here. Yeah, and congrats on this, man. You know, I, it's clearly a, a, a tremendous labor. I mean, just the way, the amount of work you had to do to put this together, and I can only imagine the the, the insane amount of cutting and pasting and reorganizing that had to happen as you wove these stories together. But, but really, once I, you know, once I not have, a have had time to read it, it's like I can't imagine it being told in any other way. I mean, it's perfect for the, for the story. Yeah, I mean, just uh, it's not just the cutting and the pacing, but the wrangling of the billionaires, like getting getting their attention and getting them to talk to you, very difficult. I'll just tell you that. Um, but you know, most people recognize the value of doing a story this way and doing a real unvarnished, you know, debullshitted history. And I think that's what we got here, even though it's the hard way to write a book because you can't just write a transition. You have to get someone to tell you who was witnessed what happened to kind of move the story along. Um, it was it's it's the best way because, you know, you I found so much new stuff about a story. I thought I knew frontwards and backwards, and that's because I went back to primary sources. Yeah, and that's what I said. Even reading things that I knew pretty well, there were or always details, and not even just details, but just the complexity of it. And you know, that that's one of the things that um, I guess I, I'd have a question for you is is what you know, since even with all of these, you know, you have all of these stories, you, you're still like condensing, you're crystallizing a story, you're picking out the things you think are interesting, you're picking out things you think are important, you're still selecting this mass of, of interviews f with, with certain, I don't want to use the word, say agenda, but certain perspectives that you're interested in. And what were those perspectives? Were there things that you, you came in already knowing, these are things I want to say about Silicon Valley, or did the stories really emerge from the, the conversations you had, or was it some combination of those two? It was some combination of the two. You know, the book is divided into three parts. It's first, it's it's kind of uh, the birth of the personal computer revolution. So that's 68 to 84. 
And, and I knew that was the combined story of Xerox, Atari, um, and Apple. So Xerox, Xerox Park being um, the, the great foundational R&D department where whence everything kind of came from. They were out in Palo Alto, um, Palo Alto Research Center was what Park stood for. So, and, and then um, I knew that I wanted to do the kind of post 95 story. So kind of uh, 95 was the Netscape IPO. So that's the opening of kind of the consumer internet all the way to the iPhone. And then it, it gets pretty clear what you want to do. You know, you obviously have to do Google, um, the iPhone and iPod story with Apple, Facebook, and, and I, I thought eBay and Napster um, were similarly obvious. Um, but it was really the, this weird interregnum, the, the, the kind of second of three sections of 84 and 95 that I, I really, really just emerged um, through my reporting. And the theme that re emerged is kind of this birth of a cyber culture um, theme. And so, I mean, and look, Eric, I, I, I don't have to tell you about this. Uh, if you didn't coin the word cyber culture, I would be surprised. But, um, but no, but, I can make, I can make no such claims, but it, it really was uh, quite entertaining to read you know, this sort of parallel world. I mean, I didn't move out here till 95. So I missed some of the, you know, the, the high and holy days at the, the Mondo 2000 house and uh, the very beginnings uh, of, of Wired. But I knew a lot of the characters and it was really, you know, that was an, another wonderful thing about the way you tell the story is that certain people that I got to know well because they were unusually friendly and interested in me or whatever, um, but who aren't necessarily like the major players, aren't necessarily the people you hear that much about. You know, they're the kind of supporting characters in a, you know, a business story about Steve Jobs or, you know, some other kind of book that's really focusing on the major players. But a lot of those characters actually show up a lot, like people like Brian Bellendorf, who's like instrumental both in cyber culture in the sense that he... He was working at Wired. He started the SF Raves list. Uh, he was very utopian, very much a you know a, a kind of Richard Stallman approach to to software. And of course, he was part of the Apache team that were always trying to make a kind of open source internet you know uh, tool kit available. So fascinating guy and a super sweetheart but he's you know he's he's not like super you know loud personality he's not a really arrogant guy he's a sweetheart and like i would not think that that he would get kind of his due and and he shows up here a lot and there's other people like this well dan dan cocky and other characters but reading that one that period in particular the 84 to 95 it's no longer really clear it doesn't read like a business story you know, it doesn't read like, well, what we're really talking about here is the emergence of this massive, you know, sector of the global economy. It's like there's something else going on that's not quite in the university. It's not quite in the research labs. It's not quite in the entrepreneurs. It's not quite in the drug culture. There really is this kind of confusing slipstream uh, where it's not just not altogether clear 
where the line between fun and work and science and consciousness, you know, are going on. I mean, it was really a striking a, a period of time. Yeah, I mean, and it's and because everybody looks at uh, Silicon Valley, sees these billions and billionaires being created, they think it's a business story. But I, I think it's just um, uh, the business story is just a smaller part of a larger cultural story about a, a new culture, a new pop culture, a new youth culture. And, you know, from uh, 84, which was when the Mac launched, and 95, uh, which is when Netscape um, essentially launched, was uh, was kind of dark years for business reporters in Silicon Valley. Why? Because Microsoft was totally dominant. And Microsoft, let's remind our listeners, is not a Silicon Valley company. It's a tech company, but they are based up up in outside of Seattle. So, so. Um, um, but if you start looking at the cultural story, that period, that fallow period where not many people are making that much money um, is kind of where the, the culture that we now know, uh, you know, meme culture, all the rest, both the good parts and frankly the bad parts, was, were, were, was being created. So they're not only figuring out how to you know, kind of, um, you know, build new things and make and create, you know, put the kind of creative DNA into business teams, but they're also figuring out what it all meant. Um, you know, the, the first hackers conference um, was in 84, 85, and, and that's when the, the phrase information wants to be free was spoken for the first time. Um, and directly after that, the well was established. Um, which well, is, let's actually just let's just stop uh, stop and talk uh, about the well a bit because that was something uh, you know. Again, one of the one of the interesting things about history in general is if you you know you do your homework, you start to realize that things that look new aren't quite as new, or that there are these moments in the past that anticipate a lot of what we're we're doing. And the well is a great example of something that was it was never commercial. Uh, they weren't even able to scale p particularly well, even though they had a lot of uh, users in the 1980s. It was like basically a bulletin board, but it became kind of the first, you know, a social media space, a space of dialogue and discussion and, and you know, online personalities and, frankly, flame wars and trolling. And, and one of the stories you tell there is is how some of the you know, the leaders, particularly Stuart Brand, just got sick of the whole thing because it was the politics and the way in which you get a lot of smart, nerdy people on a bulletin board and, um, you know, they get mean. <laughs> and especially if you give them anonymity, you get mean. There's that one great story about the, the having the anonymous conference and they were all like, oh, my God, we cannot give anonymity. Things just get completely out of control. And reading that now, you know, even if we saw what the well looked like now, you'd be like, what? Just a bunch of, what? This is nothing. And and yet you you can sort of, it's like this prophetic moment where all of these social features that we now see all over the place are are done is, is in, in a kind of Petri dish. Yeah, the, the Stuart Brand quote uh, was, you know, the anonymous conference was easy to set up, 
and it lasted less than a week because people immediately behaved absolutely viciously to each other. They pretended to be each other. They thought they were just spoofing, but actually it was mortally insulting stuff they were doing. And, and, and you know, these aren't just, these aren't like kids that have discovered the well. He's talking about like the intellectuals and, and, and kind of uh, that populated the well. Even they kind of resorted to trolling and flame wars when given the opportunity to uh, hide behind that. And, uh, it, and that was kind of the great lesson that they took away. Um, it's like you, you cannot do an uh, anonymous and you can't even do an unmoderated social network or else you get, um, you get you know, this, this kind of amplification of the most negative sides of, of human personality and 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 yes this stuff was brand new they literally discovered it that the word flame as in i i've been flamed um online was first used in that context on the well yeah there's a lot of stuff like that and then the other another obvious example from that same arc uh of time in the in the middle section in the book um which i also thought was the most most interesting partly because it was both more more familiar and also like i learned even more about certain things it, it, it because it had less of an obvious structure and uh you have a, a chapter devoted to to virtual reality um and again i remember some of those characters scott fisher from nasa and you know jaron lanier with the dreads and the you know i got to try out the the vpl glove and all that kind of stuff um but you have an interesting sort of take on that on uh, on on VR because it was this great question of like there was so much enthusiasm, there was so much media attention both from the mainstream media and from the Monda two thousand crazies who were like this is like drugs and you know every everybody wanted it you know and there was fantasies about teledildonics you could actually have a whole magazine about like cyber sexuality even though it didn't really exist I mean. In retrospect, it's this very strange thing where there, the, a, a technology is in its you know infancy, this huge amount, not just of hype, but of just projection and desire and fantasy, you know, surrounds it, and then it doesn't go anywhere. And now, where it's actually happening, it's actually being you know, coming on, on, you know, online, you know, it's, it's going to be part of our, our, our immediate future more and more. Um, and it's such a long gap and it's such a strange kind of, uh, uh, you know, foreshock, if you will. So t talk about that chapter. I'm just interested in, in how you uh, decided to tell that story of all this enthusiasm leading to next to nothing. Well, I, I knew I wanted to, to write about um, Jaron Lanier and Jaron Lanier's company, VPL, because he was, he's just one of these kind of insider figures that I think is terribly important. Um, uh, you know, he, he in, literally invented virtual reality in the same way that, say, Nolan Bushnell uh, invented video games. And, and we're talking... These people invented cultural forms that I think will be remembered uh, like we now remember 
jazz or really uh, the movies, you know, the Hollywood movie, the two other kind of big modern American art forms. Anyway, um, but yeah, when I got into it, it was this question of why did it, first there was all this, you know, Timothy Leary and Darren Lanier in that period were kind of like best friends, um, uh, or at least, you know, the mutual and uh, admiration society between them was like kind of at its peak. Um, and there were all these crazy stories, but but yeah, it's this is a, a, a tech history. Why did it fail? And it all it all kind of came down to um, the web coming along, and the kind of the the everybody was expecting virtual reality to be the next big thing, and all of a sudden it's actually the internet. Um, and David Levitt, uh, who is kind of was kind of the other guy with dreadlocks in in VPL had a great quote about that. He said, you know, um, before before VPL ended, I used to think that there is a that there was a technological inevitability to VR that it was unstoppable. But after the company was gone, I realized that it takes a visionary, a Steve Jobs or a Jaron Lanier or a Douglas Engelbart determines whether these things are overlooked or not. A true visionary just makes the future about what is available and does not wait for the technology to up, catch up with him. And really that's the whole book in miniature. Um, you know, th this is a history, but Silicon Valley is an interesting place to do a history because they look at history different than you or me or almost anybody else is not something that happens to us it's something that they do and uh you know that's that's the real power of of the silicon valley culture to 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 make you know to because it's it's comprised of makers and doers and 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 that let's just make something happen kind of makes the mindset that that we can build it mindset i mean when this is the last time we saw that, you know, maybe World War Two. Well, it's funny how much the that, you know, the the one of the things that people say in, in, in your in your book for a number of ways is that in a way what is the the most the greatest innovation of Silicon Valley is the kind of startup culture or sort of the mm -hmm. the logic of development and mm -hmm. the ability of people to leave large companies and go start small companies. Um, the ability to get uh, venture capital that you that no one's going to beat the crap out of you if you actually just burn through with a failure because they recognize that there's sort of a larger logic of it. And when you look at that whole culture, you know, and you go, where did how did that come from? Where did all that come from? A lot of it has to do with World War II because when we came out of World War II. You know, guys in the military, guys in the university, people in Washington, uh, people in business were like, wow, we invented a hell of a lot of stuff in a short period of time under a tremendous amount of pressure. How can we uh, artificially create those circumstances in peacetime so that we can c continue this innovation boom? And one of the places that they try to do that is, of course, in Silicon Valley with Stanford and, you know, da, da 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 And so some of that stuff really comes out of a way of trying to match the innovation of World War II. Yeah. Uh, 
Which is a fascinating thing. But I wanted to point to one of the most interesting parts in the book for me in terms of, yes, there's a story about making and doing, but there's also, of course, the problems that certain things end up winning for other kinds of reasons and great possibilities, possibilities that many intelligent people were very invested in, thought seriously about, were left on the, you know, the cutting room floor. Um, and one of those is, in, in, you know, requires a little bit of, of work, but I think wor is worth talking about, is the chapter Fumbling the Future. And I'll just set it up, and then maybe you can kind of go into the details. So the basic story, which is the one that I'm familiar with, other people who've read histories of this stuff were familiar with, it, you know, histories of Apple, is, is so there's Xerox Park, where all of this tremendous innovation is going on, uh, running on some of Engelbart's ideas, but taking them farther. farther. You got Ethernet, you've got a laser printer, you've got a, a, a graphic user interface, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the elements, a lot of the core language of, of our personal computing comes from Xerox Park. So they're doing all this innovation, but their corporate overlords don't really know what to do with it. Xerox is being goofy, they're being stupid or whatever, conservative. They don't, they don't like the idea of a computer. So then a young Steve Jobs wanders through. He looks at some stuff. He goes, ooh, cool. And then he, you know, scampers off and, and ports a lot of the ideas uh, into uh, the Apple II, into the idea, the sort of logic of Apple computers. And, but what the point is that, that happens in, in fumbling the future, the argument is, is that while he took some superficially very significant things from what was happening at Xerox Park. He left the really complicated and really powerful stuff behind, partly because uh, it, he knew that it, 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 at, at a certain point, if you really want to have a consumer personal computer, it can't be that complicated. So you can't expect people to learn that much about the machines they're using and therefore be able to really use them to the, in the ways in which they were designed to be used. That seemed to me an extremely significant transfer point from a certain hacker culture that was intellectually rigorous, very utopian, human potential movement influence, like we can really make people smarter with complicated tools that they're going to really, and then at some point there's this kind of shift to simplicity that makes everything happen, but we also really lo lose something in that. So Eric, that was a really good synopsis of a chapter called Fumbling the Future. And yeah, Fumbling the Future is the name of a history of Xerox Park, where the argument was made that uh, Xerox invented everything and totally blew it because they commercialized nothing but the laser printer. Because they weren't a computer company, they're a paper company, and they like paper. Um, by the way, the reason we have like a desktop metaphor based on paper is because, because of just that reason, um, even today. However, um, so, but you know, this, what I learned when I went back to the sources is that actually um, it's a little, little bit different. The, uh, people think, the real insiders think that it was Jobs that some fumbled the future because he kind of um, stole the wrong stuff. He so, uh, stole the superficial 
kind of idea of a, of a mouse and a, grass, a graphical user interface where you could, you know, kind of drag and drop. Um, but he didn't um, steal kind of the deep structure where everything could be modified by the user and, uh, and, and really um, he, he gave something to the public that was just kind of a, a very shallow imitation. And really everyone from Alan Kay, the guy who invented everything, or at least the graphical user interface at Park, to, to Woz, Steve, you know, the co-founder of Apple, essentially agrees that that is true. Um, so, um, but, you know, there is another very similar moment with Apple, you know, what, uh, 15, 20 years later. Um, and that's, and that's when the iPod came out. So Steve Jobs returned to Apple because, um, as kind of a last ditch Hail Mary, you know, the board said, we're going to run out of money in 90 days. Let's, let's just invite, tell Steve that he can run the company again. And he, uh, he, he stopped the flow of red ink and then started rolling out new products. And the first real new product uh, that he, breakthrough product that he rolled out was the iPod. And the iPod led literally directly to the iPhone. Um, and a lot of the insiders that um, the real kind of people who built the core technology and the core ideas identify that moment too is where everything went wrong. That's where, where we, we go from, you know, Apple goes from building what they used to call the bicycle for the mind, you know, something that would augment and extend uh, human capability uh, to um, inventing, you know, an, another entertainment device, an opiate for the masses. And really that's where we are today, right? Um, we have, uh, you know, Apple has nothing to do with, well, a little bit to do with Twitter and Facebook, but you know, we're, we're at a place where people are disgusted uh, by Silicon Valley, I think rightly so, because what they've created is not this incredible suite of tools. Um, and let's remember where that came from. That was Stuart, Stuart Brand's core idea, right? But they've created this, you know, new kind of, this, this kind of machine that spews out, um, kind of ideological echo chambers and hate and fake news. And, you know, you can just find the worst of uh, human behavior just on full display right up on the front page of your internet, unless you're really um, vigorous about um, editing and curating what you see. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about the story that, um... You know, I, reading your book, even though you, you don't take and I'm actually kind of curious in the I, I, you know, I, I just finished the conclusion before we started. And um, you don't take the opportunity at that point to really go into some of the critical 
problems with the silicon, with the very culture that you're describing. Those elements are in the book. They're woven in through individual, um, through individual voices. But we are at a very interesting point of kind of reckoning with the story. But one of the reasons that I think your book is so important is because it just it gives more complexity to that to the Silicon Valley side of things because people have terribly simplistic ideas of it. And I encounter this a lot uh, talking to technology critics, talking to people who are, um, you know, uh, who hate the California ideology, they call it the sort of marriage of, of, of markets and uh, hippie anarchism and all this kind of thing. And you, you're, you know, your story just shows all the, a lot, there's a lot more complexities to it, but it is in some ways a tragic story or a story of, uh, capitalism as usual, even though it leads to what some might say is a different kind of capitalism. Um, and part of what I mean by that is that it, you, you know you, you begin your story with Doug Engelbart. We've mentioned his name a few times, famous for inventing the, the first uh, mouse and quite a visionary. And he was overwhelmingly motivated, this is the 60s, by a dream of human augmentation. This is the time when Esalen's beginning, the idea of human potential, all these things people hate now. They they think that it just means uh, the selfish, consumerist, neoliberal ego. And it's so much more than that, or it was so much more than that. And it's really important to acknowledge what has been lost in this transition rather than saying, oh, look, from the beginning, all of this stuff was just leading towards clickbait. All of this stuff was just leading towards, you know, essentially propagandistic mind control. And there's a lot of technology critics who will say that. They'll, they'll blame the, the counterculture. They'll blame technological nerds. They'll blame Stanford. You know, they'll blame the whole thing for some of these transformations that have occurred. And yes, they've happened for reasons that are internal to Silicon Valley. Absolutely. Many of the characters in your book made a huge amount of money doing things that, you know, in the long run didn't work out that well for, for, for everybody. But at the same time, the positive side of the story, part of which is about this human augmentation, how do we make humans better? How do we let people do the things they already want to do better? Uh, and not just get them locked into different forms of kind of consumerism or media or different forms of, you know, surveillance and work control, you know, all the kinds of negative things that we can talk about. Um, what for you are the strongest values or ideas, philosophies, motivations that you believe are inherent to this culture that you have chronicled that we could really use a lot more of now that, that could be brought forward, that could be, be used to help navigate us through this, this period where the dark side of, of this whole, you know, uh, technological event is, is so obvious to us. Well, before I answer that question, let me just say, you know, this larger question of, you know, what have we wrought here um, is, is, you know, perhaps that is my next book. It was just a little beyond the scope, but I, um, which is why I didn't challenge it I, uh, in the end. Um, however, I will say that 
every person to a man, to a woman that I interviewed brought up this issue pretty much independently to me and wanted to talk about it. And, and I used most of their quotes uh, when, they, when they criticized the Valley. Um, and, the, and it all boils down, and they all basically said the exact same thing. It all went wrong when the, the tidal wave of money came in. And with the money came the profiteers and the carpetbaggers and the people looking to get rich quick, okay? And so what I see um, is really two cultures, uh, like, a, um, a, like a deserving, wonderful, creative, um, almost uh, uh, kind of Silicon Valley um, culture of makers. Um, and then a kind of kind of evil or at least a moral money culture that is threatening to overwhelm it. And I think, um, you know, and I, I, and I knew that that dichotomy was there and I, and I really, that's why I didn't actually interview any venture capitalists because, you know, they are peripheral to the, to the real act of creation, which is the spark, the, the really thing that's, that's worth saving in Silicon Valley. Um, and then to answer your question directly, uh, you know, what what is it you know what is it about silicon valley that's worth celebrating it's 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 you know steve jobs said it best actually when he did his uh commencement speech at stanford and he talked about this kind of realization that the world was everything in the world that you can see was actually made by people who were you know just people and who who weren't smarter than any smarter than you and so you don't you don't have to just accept it if you don't like the world you can change it uh and so i think that that is the core thing that that is worth celebrating preserving and i and i would argue strenuously to the you know the California ideology people or, or, or any of these kind of so-called critics who, who just don't know the history that 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 is you know that that there is a there is a real Silicon Valley and then there's a fake Silicon Valley you know there was a time when people said oh I want to change the world and it was sincere and then now we're in a time when you hear those words and you know you wonder who who uh who bought the, you know, what crummy PR agency is like charging for that kind of advice. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly that it's also a moral choice to be optimistic about the future and that um, it's uh, kind of a responsibility um, for, to, to kind of, you know, believe in the ability of the future to be better 
and help the future to be better and find what's good in what you know the kids are doing. Yeah, yeah, that may, that totally makes sense uh, for me. It's funny when I when I have these conversations, when I um, engage people around the, uh, around the future, I'm often more positive than I am in my own mind. It's a real interesting thing, and I go, "Why?" Sometimes I think about that. I go, "Why is that? How come when I'm I'm sitting on my own reading news or whatever, and I, I get these kind of despairing thoughts, and then when I'm in a in conversation, even if it turns to the dark, there's a kind of a hope there's sort of some there's an enthusiasm there's a hope there's a sense of possibility and i realize that it's it is partly an ethical choice that comes up for me in the context of communicating that if i'm dealing with other people if i'm engaging other people directly if we're talking about things that there's sort of like an inherent ho- little hope guy that comes up who goes hey you know come on <laughs> look at it look, you can look at it from different angles there, there's you, also a cognitive bias at work i mean you know the joke is that if the technology existed you know when you're a teenager it has always existed and then if it like emerges in your 20s and 30s it's the it's the the most amazing thing ever invented and it's going to you know quote change the world change everything and then if uh, there's a technology comes along in your 40s or 50s like it is an abomination that needs <laughs> you know to be outlawed and you actually you can actually see you can kind of predict the ages of people by where they they kind of make this line uh, where everything went went south so you know that said um you know, when we're talking about the horrors of Silicon Valley, you know, I like to say, well, you know, like, what Silicon Valley? You know, we, one of my favorite quotes was this guy, Steve Perlman, who's uh, one of these figures that everybody in the Valley recognizes, but no one, no one's ever heard of before who's not in the Valley. Anyway, he was everywhere. The intern at Atari was at the, the you know, R&D lab at, at Apple, et cetera, et cetera. He's at General Magic the first um, kind of cell phone company or hardware company. Anyway, he said, look, look, Adam, Silicon Valley is Detroit, you know, in the 50s, okay? It's dominated by three companies, you know, uh, Ford, Chrysler, and GM, you know, and you know, there'll be a new tail fin or, a, you know, a, a, a new way to make it convertible, but nothing is really going to change. It's locked down. And I, I agree. I, you know, Apple, Google and Facebook, Facebook are, you know, are these monopolies, essentially um, quasi monopolies that pretty much control everything. And if you're sitting, but but you gotta but if you want so if you want to see the hope and you want to see the future, you got to look under that for the underground, non you know underfunded kind of ideas that the young technologists who are still flooding here from all over the world are excited about, and so and when you do you know you these you got these interesting blockchain technologies, which really could overflow, uh, over, over, um, throw those giants. All, um, you've got all kinds of hardware startups that are going to totally change transportation among other things. Um, you, you've got the quantum computing folks so that, you know, they're, uh, uh, that are, you know, trying to, you know, which could, again, 
change everything in the way that the the um, the integrated circuit set off this last 50 years of hyper change and hyper growth. I mean, I really think that we haven't seen anything yet. You know, and these arguments over the shape of our media are just going to look trivial um, in another 50 years time because we're talking about the shape of, you know, life itself. I mean, yeah. uh, well, I mean, it know, does, it does the seem to be genetics, the... the geneticists that are coming here um, and, and, and turning, gen, you know, genetics into an information science. I, that truly, that those are big breakthroughs that are coming. I think it'll make this look relatively small. Yeah, that's a funny way of put, thinking about it, but it it, uh, it makes sense, and that's some of the things your uh, your your folks talk about in the in the last chapter, where you're kind of looking forward towards uh, other kinds of developments. Too much for now. I wanted to, to mop up with a couple of questions. One is like one of the great characters in Silicon Valley lore is Nolan Bushnell, Mister Atari. You know, the Atari's an amazing company. They were so weird. They were so like seat of the pants such a crazy boom and bust it was such a 70s story and you got, and you got to meet the guy right so what well, how much was he at this point was he kind of a, a puppy dog i mean he has this rep as like the just the he's like the archetype of the of the silicon valley uh big man you know <laughs> a real character so what was he like yeah michael malone who's the first silicon valley reporter ever said, Nolan, he's the first t-shirt tycoon. He's the first modern Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's not building heavy-duty hardware. He's not doing silicon. He's doing consumer electronics. Literally, every kind of swaggering young CEO that, that from, from literally from Steve Jobs up till now is uh, consciously, in Jobs' case, or unconsciously, um, aping no, uh, what Nolan invented, like the whole, like, you know, look at me, I'm going to change, change everything now. And it's, it's, you know, it's your twenties, I guess, but he is the most delightful grandfatherly kind of cool character that I met in, in, in this whole thing. He, he, he didn't actually make a lot of money from Atari. I mean, he did, but um, he ended up l uh, losing it all on trying to make a robot that would uh, live in your home and catch and fetch you beer. Um, and he's, but he's, he's just great. What can I say? Um, well, that, that actually kind of warms me. I mean, you know, I really, yeah. I really like that. And I, and I just also like the, the whole, you know, I mean, I guess because I'm just obsessed with the 70s, but imagining them like putting together Atari machines in an in an old roller rink and then like, you know, Steve Jobs comes back from India and he's shaved and he's in his, his head's shaved and he's wearing saffron robes. And they're like, can they, he's like, can I get my job back? And they're like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> You yeah, know? isn't that great? So now here, here's a political question I've had, and I've been thinking a lot about this. And one of the things that, that irritates me about the, the leftist critique of Silicon Valley and of California in general with the California ideology being a, a, a good example 
um, is that is is the problem, and it's a real problem, and I don't know how to answer it. And I I know this is something you're interested in too, um, outside of the book, is how to distinguish between two forces that are, to my mind, equally at play in at least the first two and certainly the second of your three stories or the three sections of your book. And that's the tension between what I would call a hippie anarchism, where the idea is that you, of course, you want to empower the self because the self is is a place where creativity and autonomy comes from and allows you to do other things with other people that are super cool. You don't want to be controlled. You don't want the state to be telling you what to do. You don't want the man. You don't want your culture to be telling you what to do. You want to make it up yourself. And that might be naive. That might be whatever. But there's, you know, a lot of the hippie ethics, though, some of the a lot of the politics were leftist. Uh, the politics on the street, the sympathy with anti, you know, decolonialization in the third world, the sympathy with Black Panthers, the resistance to the Vietnam War, that some of those issues also overlapped a more anarchist kind of tendency, which tended to be a little more apolitical, but was also deeply engaged in the possibilities of remaking life by throwing off the burden of tradition, by throwing off people who are telling you what to do. Uh, and to th- there was a kind of utopian sense that working together, you could create something new. And so that's one side. And then on the other side is what we would call a kind of right-wing or market libertarianism, which if you look at its rhetoric, actually isn't that different than some of the anarchist positions. And so these leftists, Adam Curtis and his documentaries is a great example of this, but this is a common European critique of the West Coast is that those were always basically the same thing, that hippie, hippies were just libertarians with long hair and weed. And so the whole thing can be written off as a great example of what goes wrong when you have market libertarianism controlling you know, services and society. Uh, you know, I know you've thought about this, a lot of these things. How would you characterize that relationship in terms of the Silicon Valley story? Where... You know, how important was libertarianism? How, how hairy was it? Was there a, a distinction and maybe even a tension between a more kind of hippie anarchism and a more hard-edged market libertarianism with certain companies or certain individuals? How would you characterize that? I think before the Clinton era and, bef- and before, or Clinton slash Obama era and before, really 2001 that's kind of when the hammer came down uh in terms of uh, um kind of cultural descent in this country as well as um the the point you know in 2004 that was just after that was when google ipo'd and really became a, a force that that the political and power elites on the east coast of this country had to deal with them and that's that's when Somewhere in that era is where this kind of blanket, I'm a social democrat, I'm, I'm a, a capital L liberal kind of, that's when, that's when that happened, this idea that, you know, uh, but before that, and especially during that 84, 95 period that we were talking about, cyber culture, there was an absolute diversity 
of fringe political ideas, what we now call fringe. It was the norm to be a little bit radical. And yes, there are, there are pretty much every flavor of libertarianism or anarchism or, uh, um, and, um, but you know, they all got along. I don't know why. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I feel that the libertarian ethos is super strong and it's still there just kind of, um, um, hidden a little bit uh, behind kind of a wall of political correctness. Um, but I don't think it's the capital L libertarianism as in the libertarian party, which has pretty much sold itself to, um, you know, the, the, to the highest bidder and has become not market oriented, you know, not pro market, but pro business and and often pro-established business. So, well, that's a really important distinction, right there. Is that there? Yeah. There's a there's a, a very strong s stream of lib both liberal, classic liberal thought, and libertarian thought, which is very pro-market, but is quite critical of monopoly capitalism. Yeah. And yeah. That that's actually one of their main. Whereas once that once those ideas get translated again into kind of more of a pop media space. Um, and also for people who just hate capitalism in general, yeah. they don't see that distinction as they being very important. They don't see that important. distinction, yeah. And, and, and I really think it all goes back to the guy, a guy who pops up in my first chapter, um, the guy who may be most responsible for getting LSD into the mouths of hippies um, and brains of hippies. Uh, the guy who was the first, uh, who literally was the first to use the phrase personal computer in print. Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand is not a capital L libertarian. In fact, he, he's probably the founder of the modern e, you know, ecological movement, okay, as well as all these other things. But if you listen to him and you parse his ideas and you listen to his protege, Kevin Kelly, and you parse Kelly's ideas, they're liberta libertarian-ish. They're they're highly tinged with this idea that, you know, you know, well, why should uh, other people or the state control us? Why can't we do it ourselves? And I and I I, I think I think it's um it's both an it's both an ideology, but uh, but it's it's an ideology, but it's something else. It's just a recognition of reality. The reality is that people are becoming more and more and more empowered um, to do stuff. I mean, now I, as an individual, could send a satellite to space for a couple thousand dollars. That was something that, you know, 50 years ago took the greatest nation, most powerful nation on earth, you know, uh, something like 10% of the entire GDP for 10 years to do. You know what I mean? It's like, we're we're we are in an in entering an empowered age um the scary thing is that these technologies also empower the state and there's kind of this race between oppression and um and kind of the the oppressive forces i mean look at some of the things that are going on china in china and the kind of liberatory forces you know when people Who's are going to win that race yeah. you know 
who are we going to trust to win it? And and it's it's really we're we're going to have to go back to the technologists and hope that they are developing technologies that will you know keep keep the individual in front of the state. And, you know, um, we haven't heard about crypto or cipher the cipher punks as they were called since basically 9/11. But I assure you. They're coming back and working on stuff, and and that's that's what we have to identify as kind of the the real Silicon Valley and the good in Silicon Valley, um, while we uh, as at the same time we condemn like the ways that technology can trap and enslave us. Well, and also money, as you mentioned earlier, just the way what happens when, you know, the financialization and the, just the huge, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a whole other topic, but that yeah. there are values driving people then and now yeah. in Silicon Valley that are not money values and that, that those yeah. are not, they don't mean that you're just being a shill for the cash that we see or, you know, the whole financialization that dominates it. So, you know, yeah. I think you've done a really good job of pulling out those values because yeah. even if they're not the most, the strongest ones or the ones that are that are the best we could possibly imagine, in some ways, they're some of the best ones we have in a place that still has the power to make change on a very strange, very massive playing yeah. field. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to find the history we need and then celebrate that. I mean, that's my bias. Great. And I think this is the history we need. And I, I you know, this is not, I'm, I'm didn't write this because I was a history buff. I wrote this because I am interested in the future and where we're going. And, you know, there's a million people who claim they have a uh, crystal ball. Every one of them is a liar. Um, the, you know, it was Marshall McLuhan who said it. If you want to navigate the future, you have to look into the rearview mirror. And, and that is this book. Yeah. It, Excellent. Well, we're going to end it right there. That's perfect. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for being on uh, Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, that was a blast. Adam Fisher, old pal, Valley of Genius, Uncensored History of Silicon Valley, highly worthwhile. And I'll see you next week. Until then, keep your minds open. Bye.